Welcome to episode 195, The Complexity of Termination, Setting the Tone for Closure, featuring Dr. Daryl Chow. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This episode is proudly sponsored by Best Notes Electronic Health Record, software built for practices poised for growth and compliance. Visit bestnotes.com slash clearly clinical for a free demonstration. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am just beside myself to have Dr. Daryl Chow here again for another conversation about really the art and practice of therapy, this time a conversation about termination. If you haven't listened to some of the prior episodes we've done with Dr. Chow, I really recommend them. There's a fantastic one there talking about the intake model and how to really nail a first session, how to be better in a first session and not get caught up in all of the paperwork and all of the pressure and really work on the art of therapy. And also another one there featuring Dr. Scott Miller as well, talking about feedback informed treatment and the concepts of deliberate practice. But so for our purposes today, uh, Daryl has come back to talk with us about some of the nuances of termination. And goodness knows that this is such a heavy sometimes and deep topic. And there's so much it can be said. I am delighted to have you back, Dr. Chow. Thanks for having me back. It's a treat to be re-invited. So why don't you take a moment for our folks who are not familiar with you and please uh, do a brief intro and tell us um, why why you study the art and practice of therapy, how you got into that. <laughs> well, so I'm a, I'm an Asian Chinese, born in Singapore, currently living in Australia, dude, uh, with two kids and one wife um, in, in the team. And I do what I do because uh, someone has impacted me and more than someone actually, a few people has impacted me in this space uh, in my younger days. And I think it's, it's contagious. It's like, it's like when I hear a, a band that plays really well, you know, I get so infected that I want to, I want to, I want to do something more than that. I want to create as well. So it's a bit like that. It's contagious. I speaking as someone who is a feedback informed treatment nerd, it is these concepts I think are kind of infectious. And I think that's why I get so excited to have this conversation with you and anybody that's in this space, just because it it feels like such a really interesting slant on the work. Um, For our listeners, Daryl has contributed and been part of some really amazing books. He and I were just talking about um, one of his more recent contributions to a book called Better Results, Um, but really amazing research about how therapy works, why it works when it doesn't. And it's from that that we'll be speaking about this topic of termination. well, goodness, Daryl, where do you want to start? <laughs> like, I know part of this is like what not to do, what we should definitely do. Where do we start on this big topic? Well, let's begin about how to end. Um, let's kind of preface this by, by saying a little bit about how I think about this and then talk a little bit about what we shouldn't do because it, it may sound obvious, but once we get the opposites, it will help to illuminate, it will contrast and cast some light on actually how to think about it. So I think first and foremost, the, the practice of psychotherapy is a weird enterprise. It's, it's one where two people are coming into a place and they're having a conversation. So on a surface level, it just sounds like any other conversation. But to me, it's, it's not. And for therapists who are listening to this, they, they know this and there are reasons for this. So the way I think about psychotherapy, it is a, um, it is a sacred act as well as a subversive enterprise. So sacred meaning because it's a kind of conversation where is, you know, you're speaking the unspoken. So you're talking about stuff that doesn't normally talked about and you know if you get there you also start to speak about hidden truths you start to speak about things that maybe uh, 
um, mired with uh, shame and the process of bringing that to light, you know. So it's sacred for me mainly because if you think about any kind of rituals of all, rituals are a combination of um, three things. They're a combination of intention, attention, and repetition, right? So intention, attention, and repetition. It's really focused. You have one person there who is attending to you in, in a very special way through the only tool with God, which is our con- conversation. And, and to me, that's why it's sacred. So you create space for that, right? And then subversive, I think it's subversive because you're not trying to conform to society's wants or what people are asking you to do. In fact, that's probably why you're having so-called psychological symptoms. Um, so it's not a to conform, but it's to reform, to rediscover something that may help the person come alive. So it's kind of subversive. And then the other maybe why subversive, it's you're not trying to bring comfort to somebody. You're trying to bring courage. I mean, yeah, if somebody is anxious, you, you, you don't quench them with unrelenting assurance. You 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 help them to to have the antidotes of faith. I, I don't mean faith in, in religious sense, but faith meaning in the face of uncertainty that they would still do things that matters to that particular person and help them come alive. So with that in mind, I mean, if you think about the sacredness and the subversiveness of the kind of conversations we actually have in, in this space, like the ones that I'm, like this space I'm in right now, we start to get introduced and we meet people, but it also means that um, people will go, people will have to leave, and sometimes not because not because of therapist reasons. It could be because of pragmatic reasons. Maybe because it's if you're in private practice, maybe it's about funding, maybe it's about um, uh, other sort of issues about getting to the therapy, or maybe it's about fit. Maybe it's about um, things aren't going well for the client. So there are many, many different things. Or maybe in some situation that I had this coming from Singapore as well, leaving when the therapist has to be the one that that to end, right? So I think with that in mind, we have to we have to hold that as the preface of the context of what happens when um, when there's termination or there's a closure of a chapter with, with two people talking. I so appreciate the framing of therapy as a sacred act. And as you and I were talking before we started recording, sometimes it can feel like there are so many boxes that we need to check that we almost lose sight of the power that is happening between two or more people in a therapy session. And just to repeat what Daryl had mentioned, intention, attention, and repetition, because I think those concepts are really important to keep in mind as the framing for what he's presenting. I'm also thinking about something I read not too long ago, an opinion piece, um, but saying in Western culture, we are pretty good at talking about how to have a conversation, how to make friends. Like there are whole TV shows devoted to how to pick somebody up romantically. You know, like we, we have so much conversation about this, the beginning, and we tend to have very little conversation around ending. And it really gave me pause in thinking, oh, wow, that's really true. So we talk about how to start a relationship When do you hear people talking about how to end a relationship? How do we end a significant intimate relationship, you know, healthfully? What does a breakup look like? I remember a quote from a celebrity that was something to the effect of by nature of it ending, it ended badly. And that always stuck in my mind because I went, but did it? Like they're just really interesting concepts when we consider what our expectation is around relationships and our focus on the start without really giving that much thought to the end, but especially as therapists, many times we are working ourselves out of a job. The end of that relationship with a client is always in the room. And that's, as you've said, that's different than other relationships. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I like that. And sometimes I, I hear myself uh, uttering these words to clients at an early, early phase at the 
couple of first few sessions, I would say something about that my job is to render myself out of job. And sometimes they laugh and say, oh, no, it's not massive. No, but the truth is, you know, if you could use the metaphor of a journey that at this phase, I will do my utmost best to be fruitful and useful for you. If you're, you know, you, if you're moving, if you're trying to move from an old world to a new world, you're trying to make changes in your life, I, I want to help you. But I will, I will be rendered useless at some point. And you, other people might need to come into your life, other resources. And that's always good to plant early on. So continuing from that thread, let's talk about framing the end from the beginning, which again, that's unusual. (laughs) We generally don't frame new relationships being like, okay, so when we stop speaking and we no longer text each other, like here are the rules. Um, But we may do that as therapists. So if we were kind of looking at the perfect storm of ideal circumstances, um, so I guess it's not perfect storm, it's like perfect sunshine. Um, Oh, wait. To start. I think the perfect storm as well would be good to contrast on the perfect storm. So I I guess your little slip of that is is useful because I think let's let's talk about what not to do then, you know, when, when we create a perfect storm. Is that okay? Yes, absolutely. Let's let's go there. So I think, I mean, there are a couple of little things to watch out for. One, of course, is uh, to have no structure of the way you work. And and what I mean by structure, structure to me is three things. Structure is basically figuring out where are you, figuring out where you're trying to go, and why. That's all for me, structure. It's not about models or anything. It's really about just figuring out where the person's at, where they're trying to go, and why. What's the deep, what's the what's the heart of it? What's the motivation that, that doing that? So if you have a structure, then you have some thoughts about, okay, roughly, you know, uh, how are we going to proceed? Uh, how many sessions are we going to allow ourselves to go as we monitor the engagement and outcomes and so on? So when we don't have structure... It's kind of like new new client comes in, see this person, do an intake. Okay, see you next week. Come in, see you again. Oh, yeah, it's, it's coming back. And then we see, you know, and then we just keep going in that sort of unstructured fashion. I'm not saying be a tight ass and like make sure everything's restricted. You know, I'm not saying that. But at least have some scaffold. And then two, um, don't ghost your clients. I, I know this sounds bizarre. I actually just recently had a friend she recently was hospitalized, and, and uh, I asked her about recontacting her therapist, and she said her therapist ghosted her. I'm like, what? <laughs> and she said she tried to reconnect with her, but um, the therapist uh, didn't return her calls for whatever reason. You know, it's strange. And maybe sometimes it's an administrative slip-up or whatever, but that's definitely something you don't, you don't want to do. At least, like you say, have, have a way to talk about and then uh, three, this is where you see this a lot for people working in public health settings, agency, organization settings. Uh, you really don't want to be operating on a factory churn, like, you know, um, keeping sessions as brief as possible and then like hoping to wrap it up. Because when you do that, it is felt like this is a transaction. This is like, you know, uh, door in, door out, you, know, you want to create that sort of mechanical churn. You really don't want to do that. Now, but some places have time-limited lim- time ways of working. That's fine. Make that clear. Interestingly enough, uh, uh, some of the research is showing that when you stipulate a certain time frame from the get-go, uh, people are more likely to stay through the path. There's a paradoxical effect because they know that, all right, this is going to be eight session, 10 session thing, and then they will see that they need to extend a little bit more. It's kind of good because it's a framing, it's a structure for the client. That's really interesting. Can you speak a little bit more on that? That I haven't heard before. So that when people are given, when clients are given more information at the onset, it sounds like regardless of whether or not it's accurate about ultimately accurate about how long to anticipate the changes that they're seeking. Oh, no, not quite. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. Not quite about anticipating where to change, but the, the research I'm pointing to 
if you look up um, Joshua Swift's and is it Roger Greenberg, the book of pre pre mature termination in therapy. I think, uh, they talk about some one of these studies that when clients know that there's a time limit frame for the treatment, let's just say it was for CD, they know that it's going to be 10 sessions, 16 sessions. They, they seem to, to stay more than the fact that they're, they're not told how long. But that's it. That's it with the way I practice because I've been collecting my own data about outcomes engagement for a while since 2004. I, I, can, I can say to them that I know roughly from my data set that people usually experience change within the fourth to fifth session on average. It doesn't mean that will be definitely. So I would say if we could hang in there for th these few sessions, uh, we will reevaluate at every point of the end of the session, but particularly at that point, I want to make sure if are we going somewhere. So that, that would set the frame uh, of, of, of that. Thank you. I appreciate that clarification. And I'm realizing as we're having this conversation, there's effectively no way for either of us to talk about these kind of topics without grounding it in this particular research, knowing that your eyes in particular are always looking at this through how are we doing this? What do we believe as clinicians? Is it accurate? And to throw out there as an example, while I was looking at resources about this myself, um, the most effective therapists will see 70-ish percent of their clients to termination, to a planned termination to that end point. But in reality, roughly 50% of therapy clients end prematurely. And when I say prematurely, that means that the client um, wasn't it wasn't recommended to them that they stop therapy. It wasn't part of the plan, um, whether they, they ghosted or whatever, you know, how that ended up going on, but that somehow there was a disagreement between client and therapist that may have never even occurred, but the therapist was like, I don't think that was a good idea. Um, and then we are now looking at it through the lens of prematurely based on what the clinician had recommended or believed was best for that client. And when you think about that number, that's really high. <laughs> <laughs> Roughly 50% of therapy clients end on their own accord when a practitioner doesn't recommend it. That's really high. <laughs> That's really high. And, you know, where does this leave therapists? It, it leaves them with, if, for therapists who have some level of sensitivity at least, it leaves them with ambiguous loss. It's, it's a term framed by Pauline Boss, and she was studying about grief and loss, but it, there's another space about where she says, like, for example, if you have a, a family member who has cancer or who, who's, who starts to deteriorate because of dementia, they are present, but they are no longer there the, in the old ways. So there's this kind of ambiguity, you know, of like whether the person's fully there or not and they experience that kind of loss. And I think therapists face this when there are unplanned endings. And we're left with this, right? And then what do we do? How do we, how do we uh, uh, address this? Do, do we just move on? And yeah. And, you know, now that you pointed to the research, one thing that we found as well in our studies that because we were looking at therapists based on their outcomes, so we understood from an aggregation of over five years or so of them collecting the data, and we found that highly effective therapists have lesser unplanned endings than the average therapist, you know? So it's, it speaks to something. It speaks to something about understanding that, like what you say about how high the proportion of people have unilateral termination from the client's point of view and wasn't planned. But, but to be cognizant of that and to figure out a way to address this, figure out a way to um, understand the nature of this and also to see if there's anything that can be done. Right. Well, I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier in this idea of structure being an important element as we even just conceptualize therapy and a therapeutic relationship in general. But that expectation that the client feels um, 
again, I feel like it's unavoidable to circle back to like concepts coming from deliberate practice and fit, but that, um, I think any of us, if we go to a restaurant repeatedly and we keep having a not so great experience about the food, and we also have the sense that the restaurant is going to keep doing that curry or that sauce or whatever it is, because that's what they do there, then we may never go back versus if the chef comes up to us and says, hey, so how was that dish? And we actually have the opportunity to give feedback and then be like, so should I come back and try it again? Because like last time, like that lasagna, I don't know. Um, But maybe I'll give you one more chance. But so it's like, I feel like this is really part of human behavior. But it is hard for us as clinicians, I think, sometimes to think about that element of like, if a client isn't getting what they're looking for, eventually, yes, it would make sense that they would leave. And then how painful for us when a good portion of that time, we have no idea why they've left. And it is absolutely ambiguous loss. That's right. And, you know, to make matters more complicated, um, for clients, unlike uh, uh, in a restaurant, we, we just don't go, we, we, we don't like it. But you know what? I've heard so many stories. I'm sure you have heard that too about clients finding it hard to, to even end it. If therapists are of the mindset that, you know, things need to continue and come on, but then they're really not gaining or, or bearing any fruit from, from that activity, they find it really hard as well to, to address that, which is why if we are not the ones to bring this up, it's, it's really hard for clients to feel safe because if, even us asking them about feedback, it's also hard for them to to, to speak about these things, right? One, maybe they don't have a form of comparison with other therapy or, or other experiences, but it's it's challenging to talk about these sort of things because here's somebody who really cares for me, but then it seems like we're going on a path that maybe I don't find it helpful. It's, you know, it's it adds a bit of fiction to that. So what do they do? They, they might just uh, delay the next session and then delay and forgot and slips away. So going back to this concept of structure, you had started that part of the conversation by talking about the, you know, what not to do when it comes to setting up for successful termination, whatever that means. Um, what does that session from the onset look like? Are you saying to clients, yes, my job is to work myself out of a job and, and setting it up that way? Again, of course, we're going to, to pull from fit themes, but I'm, I'm really curious because you've been able to see this, not just through the lens of the first session, but through the entire treatment episode. So there's kind of a force through the trees perspective there. That, that's right. So with that sort of perspective, then you could say with a little bit, just a little bit more confidence as opposed to speculation that uh, what roughly to expect and how long you want to give this a go and how you're going to keep evaluating uh, treatment. So let me just say, if this wasn't clear so far, so I make sure that I track outcomes systematically at every session of the way. I track the alliance using a brief alliance measure. So I use this two combination like a sandwich to help me guide uh, how things unfold. But yeah, I think to, to begin, I would say something like that about um, to figure out the direction we want to take and to figure out where I can be helpful to this person. And then sometimes I would have to say about the necessity of this conversation. It's not, you're not wedded to me. It's unlike friendships or, or partnerships. You know, we're not, we're not stuck with each other. But then there are people that I work with long term too because of the, the need, right? So I think w- w- one of the important things to, to, to have with this frame, at least the way I think about this, is I think about this in terms of um, seasons. I think about this in seasons, or if you like, you think about this in chapters. So at this point, you know, as you're going through this chapter in your life, in this season of your life, we're going to help you through. And once we come to that natural course where you've moved from an old world to a new part of your life, um, I may no longer be helpful to you, and that's perfectly okay. And can we have that conversation when we come to that point? So it's really about normalizing from the get-go 
that not only is this permitted here, this is welcome here. This is what I want to have happen here is for us to talk about that. And again, as you said at the onset, that's different than other relationships because we engage in therapy if we're looking at, say, the idea of a quote unquote corrective experience. What is it like to be able to talk about the end before it comes? That's right. So two things. One, one also, you, you don't want to be okay. The person's reaping benefits. It's showing that their well-being, the symptoms dropping, well-being is increasing. And then you go, okay, now we're done. Okay, you could go now. You, know, you don't want to do that because when you do that, it, it creates a sort of a effect of like, what? Now you are asking me to go that that go now that I'm reaping some gains. That's a bit of the factory churn kind of mentality. You, you, you don't want to do that either. So you need a level of sensitivity to the fact that when somebody's reaping something, they're probably in the midst of crossing a bridge. You don't want to pull the bridge off them and go, All right, now you could swim. You know, you don't want to do that. That's a really interesting point. The the use of this reflection could swing too far the other way to then become an abrupt termination that then is damaging. So as you and I were going back and forth talking about this topic previously, obviously there's so many different elements here. Um, but we had talked about the unplanned termination where the client opts not to come back. And then also the arguably unplanned termination due to a therapist change, that they're no longer working at that workplace, that they have a medical condition, or maybe it is planned and this is going to happen in a certain number of months, but it is still a loss. Um, Let's start by talking about unplanned endings. From the side of what might happen for the therapist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how how do we change what we do mm-hmm. from the onset and in whatever stage of therapy we're in mm-hmm. with that client yeah. in case there is something completely out of left field that happens that we saw each other, we said, okay, see you next week. And then we did not see you next week. And that was the end of that relationship for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, on a practical front, if if that's due to a medical situation or some kind of emergency, if possible, I think the gesture of putting a, you know, throwing a note to let them know touches them because it's only a human act. It's only a human. Like if I, if I was supposed to meet my friend and it, and I don't show up because I had a car accident, I tell them, oh, that's a human thing to just let them know, right? So we could do that, but. Sometimes it's also because of changes like uh, job change or, or, you know, you're leaving this or maternity leave or parental leave or what have you. My take about this um, is you don't want to waste a transition. What I mean by that, um, so, so currently I'm, I'm, I'm writing this, this book. I think I spent far too long trying to get this done. But the topic is about crossing between worlds. So it's about how to help people navigate transitions, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. But anyway, when there is a transition, when we're moving from an old world to a new world, this bridge crossing process, you know, when you're on a bridge, right, to milk the metaphor a little bit, you see the same things slightly differently. You're a little bit more heightened because of the the suspension of walking on that little bridge. And... When that happens, because of the visceral heightens of that, um, we feel some things differently. I, I don't know how to explain that, but we kind of viscerally feel a little bit more awakened, if you like, about what's in front of you. So when I was in Singapore, when I, I my wife and I, we, we hadn't had kids then yet. We just got married and we decided that in the long run, we think we want to move countries. So I had to close my clinics when I was working in a hospital then. And I had to tell my clients, you know, I was trying to plan about how I'm going to do this and whether for some people, because of their attachment history, how are they going to take it and so on. You know, various people took it differently, but it it shook something for for people. It's like, what? When? 
you know, like, oh, okay. Or some people are a bit nonchalant. They're like, oh, that's fine. Uh, anyway, we're, we're wrapping up. Anyway, I'm getting there and I'm coping. Or some people go, okay, so who's the next therapist I'm going to see now? Like, who? <laughs> like, some people are just so, you know, <laughs> crap about it. Like, hey. So I, I, think, I think in those sort of situations, harness the transition because they, they would have an impact of you leaving too. And you have an impact too uh, about how they have impacted your life. So it's good to talk about them and, and to say about um, what kind of memories you carry about with them, with you, um, and also what you wish for them as they, they go forward. And some clients, we would say this, you know, like, I've been seeing you a while, but I, I, I never, I kind of took for granted that you, I know it's silly they would say something, but I thought that you you always be here. And they said, you know what, this kind of shook me a little bit and for a good good reason. And it made me want to rejig some things in my life. And so I think if we can pay attention to this bridge crossing process, if in this case, for me, it was from the therapist's point of view, but also... Uh, if that happens for clients, we could have a conversation around that. It can be fruitful. When it comes to unplanned termination, I'm realizing as we're talking about this, there's also the reality, and it's something that um, recently came up in my professional life, um, that people, clinicians included, sometimes die unexpectedly. And then here we are as potential next clinicians for a client who has recently lost a therapist abruptly. And that is, it really, I guess it really wasn't until this conversation and my own reflection of like, that is its own kind of termination and holding space for that loss. And that's a, you know, I think more socially sanctioned, I guess, to talk about grief and loss in that way. Here's an important person that's no longer um, breathing. Um, and I also appreciate what you're saying about the humanness of when we do need to abruptly leave, if we can write that note. And I, I have been in agency work, um, for a good part of my career. And I know that there are sometimes when clinicians are abruptly laid off or let go and they finish their session in the afternoon. And then someone says, okay, give me your keys. And they go, what do you mean? Give me your keys. <laughs> right. And so you have a clinician carrying probably so much grief about what they owe to their clients when they said to them, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to give you this, this piece of homework and I can't wait to hear how it goes. Or like, I can't wait for an update about the football tryouts or whatever it is. And then you never get the opportunity to close that conversation. It just lingers. This is a kind of an aside. Um, and I think is also part of the uh, recent episode that we had with Elizabeth Haney, where she was talking about kind of this, the self of therapists in relation to termination, but like, how do we as clinicians process these different kinds of termination, the ones that a client initiates, the ones that effectively the clinician initiated, but we couldn't actually control because we lost the insurance contract and the person can no longer see us if they can't use the insurance or they're moving or, I mean, a big one. Uh, I can't speak to what was happening where you are, but at least here at the height of the pandemic in 2020 and 2021, we had clinicians that were seeing people in other states and everybody's waiting for, you know, the other shoe to drop because some states said, you know, it's okay right now. Everybody's virtual. Um, not everybody, but lots of you are virtual. It's okay if your client needed to move back to Nevada and you are in Florida. So it's okay over state lines. But then I remember having to check a website pretty much every session to make sure like, is it still effectively legal for me to be seeing you now in another state? And then all of a sudden it changed. The governor, whoever it was with that law did not extend it. So then I had to say, hey, I know that I've been seeing you. I can't see you anymore because there's been a law change. And to do so, I'm, I'm risking 
my license and I'm breaking a law. And then I'm in a situation of a termination that I don't want to have to do. And it's like, I don't know how many of our listeners have been through that, but I've been through that and it was awful. <laughs> and you know what this release, it's interesting you say that, what's happening in the States, but this this leaves us in a certain state, right? It's a it's a refugee status. Almost. It's a, like, well, well, what's happening? Where am I? And where do I belong? Who do I? Who am I seeing? Yeah, it's un, it's a very unfortunate limbo situation to to, to be in. I, I don't know. There's no quick fix to that kind of uh, state because we are we're not we're not meant to be this way. We are meant to be approximately close with uh, 10, 20 people. <laughs> and in our practice, the, the, the strangeness of our, of our work is our caseloads are probably more than that, of course. Uh, and, and for some active caseloads could go from anything from 50 to 100 even for some people. And you're, you're in a whole space to, to work with these people. And some people, they, they slip out of your working memory, maybe because you haven't seen them in a while. So I think the practice of revisiting practice of having an organized way to intentionally have a whether it's a digital or, or or analog but to think about all the people you're holding space for right because some have left unilaterally decided not to come back right and then we get reminded of that and some are still active and some you go oh oh gosh i got to make sure that we, we that person's on the wait list too i got to make sure that um, this person's um, tended to. So we've got to have an organized way to do that. But ultimately, you know, we, we, are, we end up being a perpetual practitioners of grief, as, as Stephen Jenkinson would, would, would call this. Uh, he, he does a lot of grief work, but we're all perpetual practitioners of grief. We, we do have to understand the nature of our work that we do and not just simply brush it off as a professional thing but each human that we meet has hopefully has an impact on you as a therapist and hopefully you have an impact on that person too we can't control them but we have an influence both ways there's so much power in that concept and i think it's sometimes one that either with intention or unintentionally we omit we don't remember because there are so many things that we are thinking about all the time, regardless of being practitioners, just being humans. <laughs> um, but the weight of holding space for somebody and the weight of losing somebody, we have, we've had a couple of conversations on the podcast about the converse, the concept of therapeutic love many of us don't want to talk about it because it's like, I don't love my clients. It's like, well, depends how you define love. Uh, and so when we're thinking about holding space is holding space, for example, an extension of the concepts of love. But so we've shared likely some real trust and intimacy with our clients. And then when there's a termination planned or unplanned client or clinician initiated, we're no longer in the front seating zone of the story of their lives. We're not in the <laughs> audience anymore. <laughs> it's not about you. Yeah. And, and that's a lot of our own grief too. And I know for myself, as you talked about with leaving Singapore, job changes, relocations, circumstance availability, all of those things may play into ending therapy. And that Kleenex box <laughs> that sits on the table that is usually intended for clients got a lot of use after some of those sessions from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, let me give you one example here. Um, th this, I, I don't know if it falls into unilateral or, or, or consensual uh, combination. I once had a client, I've uh, been seeing her for, for quite a while and, um, been tricky because she has a lot of difficulties expressing things and and she uh, and we've been tracking the outcomes and engagement the engagement sort of like up and down the time, times where the sessions didn't really fit so well and but the outcomes hasn't really moved 
And I think past the handful of sessions already coming up to the 10th session, it's, it's where, you know, I have a little, what we call a fast and frugal decision tree, where I have certain checkpoints that I give myself. So for example, uh, if I see a client who's at risk at the beginning, I make sure that I'm not alone. I talk to a colleague or I seek supervision just to, you know, ensure I'm missing out some stuff. The second checkpoint would be if there's no progress by the fourth or fifth session, I want to have this person alerted in my mind and I want to talk with the client about this. And then if by the sixth and seventh session is still the same, I want to seek supervision, consult of the case. And then as it goes, if, if so the odds of somebody who's not improving, at least in my case, or by the 10th session is not getting anywhere, uh, the odds of that person improving in my care is as low as 10%. So I'm, it's like going to a casino and holding the hip jackpot all the time. Like it just doesn't work out. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. There's still some people who improve much later. So it's I'm not just banging everything on just the, what the average is. It's some, they're, they're often spreads, right? So anyway, this person was one that fit into that bill with, with the outcomes wasn't really improving. So I, I broached this up and I was talking about this and she, the, the client told me, she said, yeah, I, I've been wanting to talk to you about something. So I said, how long have you been wanting to talk about this? And she said, for the last few sessions. So I hazarded, yes. And she said, I, I said, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to talk about this is it? And, and she's, she kind of agreed. And I kind of had a sense of where this was going to go. And she said that she wanted to end therapy. And I said, I said, it's very important you're telling me. I said, part of me is, um, you know, I, I, I feel sad about this, but I got to tell you, part of me also is relieved that you're thinking about this because then I showed her the graph. I really don't know if I'm actually helping you, you know, in any way. And then she said, she said, she shook her head and she said, um, and I said, oh, it's not that the reason? And she said, um, no, not quite. And I said, um, anything you could share with me? And she didn't want to tell me. And um, I said, you have I kind of joked. I said, you have every right to remain silent about this. Um, and if there are arrangements, I can help with my teammates here. I want to make sure that you get the help you deserve and I want you to be able to, to come alive in whatever you're doing. She was really artistic. She, she did marvelous stuff and I really wanted her to flourish that way. So we ended up linking her with my one of my colleagues to, to work with her instead after that. But to me, that's a, I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. You're like, is it my body odor? <laughs> Yeah. Is it, is, yeah. is it the way I speak? Is it, the, you know, or what? Like, I, I have no clue. And that's, I guess, the ambiguous loss. That's the, sometimes that happens, or sometimes where clients don't come back again, or sometimes we just forget about the, about them because things were going well, and, and so it goes. When we're in that kind of situation where a client says, you know, I, I, think, I think it's time. I'm curious, do you feel like there's ever a time where a clinician should be trying to convince a client otherwise? Hmm, good question. Unfortunately, I've heard so stories about this, about how, like, uh, some, I was like, well, you know, from a schema therapy perspective, we have not addressed the, your unrelenting standards. From uh, EMDR reprocessing, we have not done the like what about right and those things can happen but who are we to say that like um we could we could express our concern you know if especially like for example if a client's at risk right then your job is to the onus is on you as a clinician to speak at the back of your mind and bring it forward as a therapeutic conversation to say you know i i think it's important that you you make you make the choice um, but I'm concerned for you about, you know, I'm concerned about the fact that you're thinking about that. And can we make sure that we have some um, safety nets? Can we make sure we have some scaffolds? Are there things that 
we could do. Do you mind if if I if I give you a bell in three months' time and, and just to check in if that's okay? It is a really interesting one um, that I'm sure some of us have experienced of that, like oh. Um, and, and it's entirely possible that that may not even be a complete story or picture of what the client is feeling. You know, maybe I said something three sessions ago and they're just saying, I don't think she's the best. So like, I think I'm done with therapy, you know? So like it, it can be obviously more than what meets the eye. Um, but it is a balance I'm hearing between supporting self-agency while also, almost an obligation to the profession around safety. Right, right. But on a, if you zoom out for a second and just go 50,000 feet up, um, that is the parenting sport as well, right? It's the support of autonomy, paradoxically related with starting from belonging. You know, you, you, only person can individuate is when they first belonged. So it's, it's a bit, I guess there's some parallels to that that you, want to harness that to be able to form this of two minds becoming one and then for them to go forward with, with their lives as well. Can you speak a little bit about some of the risks for clients when they abruptly terminate with us? So if a client comes to therapy and they feel like it's not a good fit or it's just not working or they don't like your cologne and they don't want to say anything about it or whatever it is. And they decide to leave and they don't have what we'll call a positive experience. How does that play out for this person moving forward? How likely are they to come back to therapy with you or anybody else? For that uh, matter? Right. Well, uh, I can speak natively <laughs> about this. Uh, so, because I've been collecting my own data for a while, I, I, from time to time, I, I usually pause it and look at the patterns. So I'm trying to solve the patterns. Uh, and, and one thing I noticed uh, for at one period, I think this was about two, three years ago, maybe, that, you know how we talk about alliance, you know, when we are doing any CE or professional development training, we talk about how important alliance is. Well, it is. But the thing about Alliance, it's, it's not just at, at any given point in time. It's the trajectory of alliance over time that really matters. So it turns out that highly effective therapists tend to have alliances that actually improve over time. It starts off actually lower than an average therapist. So what does this mean? It doesn't mean that you go screw up the first session and make it <laughs> and then try and repair after that. Yeah. Then knock it out of the ballpark. <laughs> well, but I'm talking about that in relations to, to unplanned termination because when I started solving patterns, I was struck that there was a bunch of clients that made an, uh, uh, the, the close therapy, rather they, they made a you know, they didn't come back, right? Uh, they dropped out. And when I saw the patterns of the alliance, it was like, okay, alliance actually was good, improved, and it was relatively where I won't get worried. But then it dipped by just a few points. Like, it's like for example, so in the scale of the session rating scale, it's like 40 is the highest. Usually people score about like 35, 36 around there. There's a, there's a bit of a ceiling effect. But anyway... It dipped from like um, on a a average is like 37 and it maybe went to like a 35 or 34. That dip, right, from the second last session to the last session that happened, unfortunately, I was not mindful of it. I was not paying attention to that. And when I asked for feedback because it was still relatively high, you you know, they, 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 yeah, it's okay, yeah, it's fine. You know, and it's kind of like I didn't, I didn't get much feedback from there. But then when I started to look at the, 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 the patterns, they were telling me something relative to their previous experience with me. So to me, that was like, like a, oh, you know, you knock your head on the wall kind of thing. And I made a promise to myself right there and then that I, front, I, I will front load myself with where they were previously so that when they score it, then... I would know in the graph when I charted that that's actually a dip, then my questions will be different. My questions will be, hey, uh, I know you said it was okay, but 
I, I'm just wondering if there was a minor thing because this experience today seems just a little bit not as resonant with you, maybe with the previous. Even if it's a minor thing, can you help me understand that? That's what I'm I'm, I'm doing now, and vice versa. If the, the graph went the other way, I want to learn as well, and yeah, what led to that change? That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing. That's another consideration of like, what if the therapist thinks that termination is the next step and the client doesn't? <laughs> I mean, there, there are so many facets of this conversation. And I've, I think all therapists can relate with the experience of asking ourselves, am I even effective? Like this person is coming back and I ask them these questions to check on Alliance and we talk about their goals and we talk about their progress to their goals and all of that. And I'm not even sure that this is really helpful. I've had the experience of bringing that into the room, so to speak, and then encountering a client reaction of like, oh, so you're ending therapy with me. And it's like, whoa, no, I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm checking in to try to understand what's happening here because I'm feeling ineffective or frustrated or whatever it is. And I'm curious how that is for you. Um, as I'm having this conversation with you, Daryl, I'm going, Oh my gosh, we have so much more to talk about on the topic of termination. (laughs) Um, simply because it really is quite astounding. And as we started this conversation in like kind of what not to do, and then also what to do, as I'm looking at the clock and in the hour that you and I have together. Wow, it just flew past. Right. What I'm hearing is the sacredness of this space, the importance of frame and deliberateness in how we do what we do, and the humanity. How do we terminate in a really human way? There are so many situations that we can't possibly name or predict. I guarantee that there are people listening to this conversation right now going, well, this one time this thing happened and the client said, blah, blah, blah. And I went, what do I do? So goodness knows we can't possibly cover every outcome. That's right. Um, so, but, but even when the, even when there is a plan ending, you know, it doesn't mean that um, they cannot come back to you. So we, like a couple of months ago, I had this client who after brief work, you know, he, he, he got what he wanted and he, you know, things were changing for him in his, in his life, in his relationship at home as well. And he came and he said that, you know, he was, he was thankful and so on. And my take to him is, is this, like, I'm glad, you know, I'm really glad that we, you, you, you got this and this is the closure of this chapter. And, um, I, I said to him that my, my doors always open for you if you ever want to return for your next chapter in your life. Um, if you need to, or if you feel you need to pursue other things, please feel free. Well, and even that is different than other relationships. That's right. <laughs> I mean, yes, let's be friends until like you decide not to be friends, but I'll always be here. And so if a client said that to us, we'd be like, so tell me about your boundaries and expectations for relationships and fulfillment. Um, you know, like it's very different. And also... Sometimes we can't ensure that. And that's another reality, you know, terminating with a client. And let's say it's a client initiated termination. We're completely supportive. We're on the same page. And then they say, can I come back if I need to? And then we may say, if I have availability and I'm still practicing, absolutely. But there's so much ambiguity in that of like, my attachment figure is gone. And I don't know if I can go back to it. Like that's, that's a heavy concept. Um, or like another experience I, I had in my own therapy was there, there was a necessary termination and because of circumstance that the, the therapist needed to terminate therapy. And we talked vaguely about when that might happen and what the timeline was. And so I had that timeline in my mind. And then in the course of one session that I didn't see coming, it was, oh no, this is going to be our last session. And then I went, (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, that, you know, here I am going, oh, look at that as above, as below, like the client and the therapist, you know, this interesting thing when therapists go to, to go to therapy and we're experiencing this like firsthand. Um, but how complicated all of these things are. And I appreciate some of the simplicity that you've talked about in spite of the complications, honor the space, set the frame, um, bring the conversations in, welcome them in and be human. If you have to leave abruptly, it's okay to write a note saying, I'm so sorry, this isn't what I wanted. And I've so valued the time that we've spent together. Um, I think even that, I'm glad that you said it because I think sometimes we get really wrapped up in like, well, I'm not providing therapy to this person anymore. So is that even ethical? And if I maintain any contact with them, am I doing something bad? Because then they think I'm still here to help them, but I'm not. And I can also see how sometimes it almost interferes in our humanity of two people that have spent some really special time together and honoring that. Yeah. I mean, you're really talking about not just in the practice, the ethics of fear, but the ethics of love, isn't it? It's a human act. It's a, it's a human thing. So as we now are closing up this hour that, for me, flew by, um, what are the most important takeaways that you want to leave with therapists as they are conceptualizing planned, unplanned therapist initiated client initiated mutually agreed upon terminations like all of these different flavors like how do we get better at this because i don't know that many of us that really feel like oh i am good at terminating (laughs) in all circumstances like that is a steep learning curve right there yeah i mean there are a couple of practical things to think about so one is to consider what it means to systematically track outcomes engagement not to outsource decision to measurement this is not about measurement this is about marrying your client's perspective based on what they say on the measures with your clinical intuition to make better decisions as you go along that's the first thing that you you want to make sure that that's there so if you have that then if things are going a certain way you can observe the patterns you could observe whether it's the outcomes going in a certain way, the engagement going in a certain way. Then second, you could develop fast and frugal clinical pathways. So I talked about this in the Frontiers walk, uh, where, where you could actually design very simple uh, decision pathway trees beforehand as a guide to help you go like, okay, pit stop one, pit stop two, just so that you, you keep an eye on how things are unfolding session by session. With the person. And then finally, I uh, mentioned this earlier, I think it's useful to think about this in terms of seasons and chapters, that for this episode of care, you know, if it comes to a close, that's fine. Um, you know, we've, we've done this and things may evolve and they may need to go to another episode of care with you or immediately or another time, that's also okay. And there's times that the nature of our work is um, there are practical reasons that people can't uh, come back, and, and that hey, that's that's part of this. And we we I guess in in our own private ways, we think about them, and we can we can bless them, we can wish them well. For our listeners again today, we've had the pleasure of hearing from Doctor Daryl Chow. Daryl, what are the best ways to learn more about you and your work? Please tell our listeners about your books and some of the projects that you're working on. Um, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, I've got an ongoing project of um, taking care of the family. <laughs> That's always going on. Uh, but if you'd like to find out more, we have a newsletter from the Frontiers of Psychotherapist Development. Uh, we call that newsletter Frontiers Friday because it's five ideas uh, to take away every Friday. We get that out on a platform that I strangely, I've never liked the platform very much, but I, this is one platform that I actually like because it's it's well thought through. It's, it's very focused on the creators. Uh, Substack, so I'm on Substack. I think if you search my name, uh, it should be there. You could link up from there. I so appreciate the way that you convey these concepts and how deliberate you are in 
making space for us to consider the human side of this, because even Clearly Clinical is loaded with the billing codes, you know, continuing education on like uh, the diagnostic codes and where it's coming from with ICD, which is not to say that those don't have value. Um, They do. And so do these conversations about the kind of human side of this whole thing and this perspective of termination and therapy in general being foundationally about grief, I think is even just a helpful uh, framing. It's always wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for joining Thanks us, Daryl. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for making this a, it's a soulful conversation. I, I appreciate it. Um, my pleasure. Thank you for having it. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.